0: Which episode was it that you wanted, Alistair? Yeah, which one did you want us I, to think
1: of? I thought I did enough. I thought I researched this. Okay, I I was thinking non-Atonian fluids, which I guess was season one. That's episode that one. That's episode one. I that know. was the very episode. first ever episode. I don't know why I. Oh my but I goodness. thought I looked this up. Wow, I'm dumb. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Where the final frontier is really cool and kinda sweet. My name is Alistair, and I'm a PhD candidate at Queen's University studying analytical chemistry.
2: My name is Sienna, and I'm a neuroscience PhD candidate at McGill University.
0: Um, my name is Beth. I am a physics PhD student at Sapienza University of Rome.
1: And we are your PhD three.
0: To be dopey! <laughs>
1: Oh right. I am so excited for this episode today. You have no idea.
0: I honestly have no idea. <laughs>
1: yeah. Really? <laughs>
2: yeah, I've been wait I've been excited to find out what it is because you guys you've been like so excited to do it and you haven't told anything yeah, about yeah. it. Okay, I kind of but, so space ice cream, that's my best guess right now. Oh what? Because <laughs> Final Frontier is obviously space and then Cool and Sweet is obviously ice cream, so
0: Oh damn, Sienna's just too intelligent, really.
2: Yeah,
1: Sienna's far too intelligent for the both of us. I'm sorry, Beth. This is because because <laughs> Sienna, you're kind of right. <laughs> yes, yes.
2: <laughs>
1: no way, actually. Okay. So the title of this episode, uh, mm-hmm. well, let me just let me just explain to you what we're going to be talking about today. Today we're talking about dark chemistry.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: And
1: never heard of that. Okay, neither had I, but. Okay. We have a guide on our journey through dark chemistry today and so okay. I'm going to let him introduce himself. His name is Dr. Sergio Ioppolo from the Queen Mary University of London. So here is
3: his right. introduction. Hello, I'm Sergio Ioppolo. I'm a physicist by training. I did my master in physics and astrophysics at the Catania University in Italy. And then after that, I moved to the Netherlands uh, doing my PhD in astronomy and laboratory for astrophysics, uh, the Leiden Observatory. And uh, in 2010, I I finished my PhD. And uh, after a brief postdoc in the same lab to build a new system there, I moved to Caltech in California uh, with a couple of fellowships. One uh, was a Dutch one, and the second one was the Marie Curie um, uh, IOF. It's an international outgoing fellowship. And uh, for, with that, I stayed there. I spent three years uh, working at the Terrarth spectroscopy of interstellar ices. And uh, then I came back because that fellowship has a return phase to Europe. And I went back to Nijmegen, uh, which is still in, in the Netherlands, uh, but in a different city. Uh, the, the Radboud University, uh, the Felix uh, uh, facility. So it's a free electron laser facility there. And, uh, and from there, then I got a, a Royal Society University uh, Research uh, Fellowship, and with that I moved to, uh, to the UK. First uh, to the Open University for a few years, and then I moved to uh, Queen Mary University of London in 2017 uh, with a lectureship and the fellowship uh, to do terrorist spectroscopy, but also other kinds of spectroscopy uh, of uh, uh, yeah, interstellar and solar system uh, isis and i'm now working mostly at large facilities so i kept working at felix but i extended my work at this, another singleton facility in denmark astrid and also an ion accelerator facility in hungary and so i work with uh, a lot of international people and to uh, different projects and uh yeah the, basically everything that i do is all around ICES, ISIS, space-relevant ICES, ISIS. But I try to study them from different perspectives, from basically the vacuum ultraviolet to the terahertz spectral range with different kind of techniques.
0: What, what
2: a cool
1: CV. Right? Of course, it's spectroscopy. <laughs> <laughs> so when I hinted this episode to you, I kind of said that we touch on a lot of things, and there's more to come yeah. don't worry i'm just getting started okay. but this is yeah. going to touch on each of our disciplines in some exquisite detail um i'm curious to see how it touches on biology for oh sure. just you wait sienna oh just you wait i'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> i'm really okay. excited too i was thinking about this this morning too because i was just i know we often like plug earlier episodes and tell our listeners to go listen to this episode but there are so many episodes that this will tie into um yeah and I almost was thinking I kind of have had a theme over this series, this season um, of episodes, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, Dr. Yopolo is from Italy, but is now at the Queen Mary University of London. Um, And he mentioned that his research basically focuses around looking at space ices, which I didn't, I mean, I don't know about you guys.
0: I don't know what that means. Space ice?
1: Yeah. So, I would never thought about this, that ice exists in space, but, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it does. But if for ice to exist in space, that kind of means that there needs to be water in space. So I asked Dr. Ioppolo about this, and here's what he had to say about water and ice in space.
3: Yes, water is uh, the most abundant molecule in the solid phase. By far, yeah. We compare everything to water. So water always is under percent of whatever else we have there. And the components of uh, ISIS are CO and CO2. These are about, in, uh, in the low mass stars, are about like 30%, 20%. Meth- methanol also could be maximum, I think, about that, or maybe a little less. And then everything else is a few percentage of the water. So really, water is way more than everything else in space. Well, not just in space, but to be more precise, in the solid phase in space, because in the gas phase, other molecules could be are more abundant. The most abundant one is H2, which is also formed on the surface of grains, by the way.
1: So there you go, most abundant in the solid phase.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I didn't realize there was so much water in space. Nice. I know, th-
1: it, this totally blew <laughs> my mind. And uh, he said a quick thing at the end there, um, f- they're formed on the like surface of grains. So we're gonna get to talking mm-hmm. about what he means by that. But I think we should take a bit of a step back and yeah. uh, fi- find out from Dr. Yopolo what is dark chemistry?
3: Basically dark chemistry, it's a uh, surface uh, chemistry that occurs on the surface of uh, ice grains with total absence of light. So basically, it's uh, all the chemistry that can happen without an energetic input. With energetic input, I mean photons, cosmic rays, X-rays, and, uh, and thermal heating. So these are all other processes that can induce chemistry on interstellar ices, but those are not the dark chemistry. So the dark chemistry is just purely atom or radical addition reactions on the surface of your ice grains with no light needed. basically That's why it's dark. And that's, we also use the term dark because it's typical of dark clouds. So those are regions in space when uh, then the dust and gas densities are high enough that those the grains basically shields these regions from uh, external light. And the only light that you get is uh, is basically induced by cosmic rays fluorescence of uh, H2 and that, that that generates some UV light, but that's the only light that you have there is in the field and the, the flux is very low. So so there is not much light inside these clouds, though that's why they're called they're, they're called the dark clouds. called dark, dense clouds.
2: <laughs> okay. Can I just like say that I already knew space was a dark place to be, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't think about how dark it could be that you would have a whole chemistry field dedicated to chemistry in the lack like the absence
1: of light the absence of any yeah. energy like yeah light thermal energy we're talking about places where there is little to no energy the the most energy as he was saying is from like kind of the scintillation the uv light of molecules yeah
2: wow that's pretty wild yeah i am <laughs> what a strange field that I just didn't know existed. And it was really, really cool already. Yeah. Like, wow, what a thing to be studying. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it is is—it is a pretty niche field. I'd never heard or like taken a dark chemistry course when I was in my undergrad or during graduate studies. I've not taken a course in dark chemistry. Um, but doc- like Dr. Yopolo said, it's surface chemistry, but it's surface yeah. chemistry in the absence of energetic input. And so yeah. um, it is a pretty niche field, and here is mm-hmm. Dr. Yopolo talking a little bit more about where the name comes from and how they came up with this name.
3: So basically, uh, we, we start calling uh, atom addition reactions uh, dark chemistry, because also it's kind of difficult to distinguish it from all the other chemistry, because that is also still surface chemistry surface chemistry is also uh, triggered by photons and cosmic rays. So when you say surface chemistry, you're not really saying what we are doing. So we cannot use that. And uh, and we were also using non-energetic uh, chemistry, but then people were getting confused because um, especially public was getting a little bit uh, uh, confused by the fact that it's non-energetic because we meant very little energy, like uh, sort of milli-electron volts, but uh, which compared to like mega-electron volts or giga-electron volts that you have in cosmic rays, it's basically nothing. Uh, but to people, non-energetic meant really zero energy. And to zero, of course, you're not talking about that. We have energy, we are at 10 Kelvin, so we, we cannot be, we are not at zero. So that was also a little bit uh, weird. And so we, we thought, okay, let's call it dark chemistry because it's the chemistry of the dark clouds. So that's why. And also because it doesn't have any light. Yeah. It has nothing to do with dark energy, though. <laughs> Unfortunately.
0: That's cool. This is why science is confusing, though. One of the main reasons why science is confusing, because we have dark energy and dark matter which at least I had already heard of. I think maybe they're more common, like, things that people have heard of. And they have nothing to do with each other either, which I didn't know until I, like, looked into them when I was at uni. Mm-hmm. And then uh, now we have dark chemistry, which has nothing to do with either of the other <laughs> two things. <laughs> but they will, like, share yeah. the dark bit of their name.
2: Yeah. Well, it's like we were saying before, histology has nothing to do with histograms, so...
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's
2: true, yeah, you're right. <laughs> words are repurposed and reused to create meanings yeah. all the time in science, yeah. and they're really inconsistent with what we've used them for before, it seems. Yeah. But no, it's great. I, I love the name.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. no, it is. this really cool name.
2: It's exciting. It likes you want to know more. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. <laughs> it gets people... In those yeah. people, in well, and
1: I mean, that's what drew me in. Um, was this paper that I found that talked about dark chemistry? Um, and so, the title of the paper is A Non Energetic Mechanism for Glycine Formation in the Interstellar Medium.
2: So this is where we're getting into biology,
1: yes. huh? <laughs> I know what glycine is. Well, this is. And I I'm... don't know what glycine is. Well, why don't I take a step back here and I'll let Sienna describe what well, uh, glycine is.
2: Okay. I mean, glycine is just one of the amino acids that our body uses to make proteins. And so often, when people are looking for, I guess, uh, evidence of life in space or just evidence of how life could have formed they look for the formation of amino acids because amino acids are obviously a key component to how life functions which is through these long chains of amino acids which make proteins so glycine is just one of them i think it's a fairly simple one though maybe it's the most simple one okay. it is the most simple one i yeah glycine is glycine is the most simple one which is why i guess it's easier to look for and people look for it right away because it's kind of the most basic of them all basic building block, And you can probably form other ones off of glycine, right? Like if you make glycine, then probably you can modify it to make others. Yeah.
1: So I've sent, I sent a photo to um, our chat. I, this.
2: It's also the only one that isn't chiral.
1: Yeah. Oh, good. I didn't think of that. (laughs) You're right.
2: (laughs) Which is the only other thing. Biochemistry 101.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. So for our listeners, chirality is like, you can have molecules that look similar like have the same bond attachments but are not superimposable like your hands um yeah exactly it's just
2: handedness really like your hands have all of the same parts but you can't superimpose them yeah and so molecules can have all of the same parts in a non-superimposable fashion
0: Mm -hmm.
2: but glycine has is superimposable
0: okay i think i slightly exaggerated in that i have heard of glycine and i think maybe we talked about it in other episodes but i am extremely grateful to sienna because other than saying it's something biology something something chemistry (laughs) i wouldn't have had any any more um knowledge about it so thank you sienna
2: my pleasure and just because I think, I think I did bring it up in our astrobiology episode. Whether or not it made it into the final episode is questionable, but <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely brought it up when we were talking about it, because it was also found in those, I think, Venus's clouds, which is why. I think, yeah, I think so
1: in the episode... Phosphine and glycine. I think in the episode we talked yeah. about other amino acids being found in the clouds, and glycine, I think, was one of them. Um, this yeah, why, I
2: think I had seen a paper on glycine. If
1: you haven't listened days. to our episode on astrobiology, go and check that out yes. after you're done listening yeah. to this one. Listening to this one. Um, so yeah, great explanation of glycine. I couldn't do it any better, Sienna. In fact, I think I just <laughs> wrote in my notes, let Sienna explain glycine. <laughs> um, <laughs> some facts I found, though, uh, about glycine are that there have been, this isn't actually about glycine, it's about amino acids. Um, okay. There have been 500 amino acids identified in nature, but only 20 exist in the human body. And I think that's really interesting. Um, As you mentioned, glycine is the simplest amino acid. Um, And I've sent a photo to our chat. This photo will be posted on our Instagram and it shows Mm -hmm. some other amino acids, some common amino acids like serine and alanine. They're also pretty simple ones. And you can see that an amino acid has kind of its, its simple backbone of the uh, carbon nitrogen COOH group. And then you just kind of can add on a bunch of different things and they can be benzene rings. They can be all sorts of fun, different flavors of amino acids. So we have all these amino acids and scientists have actually known for a while that amino acids can be formed in space, which I Mm -hmm. didn't know. I mean, I thought that was pretty cool. We touched on this actually way back in our olfaction episode from season one. Um, Mm -hmm. When I mentioned, yes, because remember I mentioned that there's a cloud in space that smells like strawberries? Yeah. Yeah. It's an amino acid. It's not glycine, but it's one of those. Um, So here's Dr. Yopolo talking about kind of how we knew that amino acids could be formed in space.
3: We already knew that you could form uh, amino acids in space through photolysis, so through the irradiation with UV photons, or through... Uh, Ion-induced uh, chemistry, so basically cosmic rays impinging on your ice surfaces in space. But this kind of energetic processing, they not only form complex pieces, but they can also destroy them. So the, the thing that we have with energetic processing is, number one, is that they are more in, mostly important in uh, during the formation of stars and planets. So in, uh, in evolutionary stages of these clouds, they are much later on. That what we found glycine now. So we thought the glycine was formed much later on, much closer to what do we know as a solar system like, and not just an interstellar cloud. And then the thing is that these photons, they can break any possible bond that they they want, basically, because they have enough energy to do that. Uh, So they don't really discriminate and they, they can basically just destroy all this complexity as well. So they found from laboratory work uh, in early 2000s that uh, if you irradiate an interstellar-relevant ice for a long time, you get all these amino acids as well. But if you keep going with the irradiation, you destroy them.
2: Hmm. So there must be a lot of flux back and forth with these amino acids.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're destroying and creating them in energetic mm-hmm. mediums, like when there's photons or other energy being inputted.
4: Mm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. In order to reduce that energy, um, we need to go to very low temperatures because temperature is just a measure of kinetic energy, right? Kinetic energy difference. Um, and so, I asked Dr. Yopolo what kind of temperatures exist um, in space and in the mm-hmm. lab. But he's going to talk about wait. Both. Can I just mm-hmm.
2: can I just tell you my trivia fact? Okay that i know because i've gone to multiple trivia nights is that the coldest place on space is the boomerang nebula
1: i didn't know that what's the temperature of the boomerang nebula
2: i think it's like two or three kelvin wow blimey okay but anyways in case that ever comes up at your pop quiz night (laughs) (laughs) like where's the coldest place in the universe it's the the boomerang boomerang nebula nebula. boomerang
1: i will remember that that's a good that's a good fact Um, (laughs) thank you (laughs) so here's here's the typical temperatures in space
3: Uh, typically 10 Kelvin. The, these grains are, are, and also the gas is usually around this temperature, 20, 10 Kelvin. And uh, the extinction of these clouds uh, is uh, between two and <laughs> hundreds of AV. So can be very, very thick optically, basically, that means.
1: Yeah. Um, and
3: can we achieve that low of a temperature in the lab? Definitely, that is not an issue. This is one of the things that uh, that is actually quite nowadays easy to achieve. Ten kelvin is not a problem. You can uh, buy any kind of standard uh, um, closed cycle uh, helium cryostat that can easily control the temperature between room temperature or even a bit higher to down to ten to six kelvin. Now that's that's easy. It's quite cheap also to reach, you need maybe 30 K and then you get a system of complete system with the compressor and cryo head and, and cold finger where you attach your substrate which resemble your basically your sample uh, in interstellar relevant sample. But if you want to go to lower temperatures then you can use liquid helium and then you can go down again. And then if you really want to go to the sub Kelvin temperatures then you need, you need different techniques than that. So but this one is easy to reach. There's not a problem. We have other problems, so this is not one.
2: Oh my god. <laughs> I'm just shook. I'm just like the way in which he was like, oh yeah, no problem. Ten Kelvin, no biggie. Right. You can just buy a cryostat at 30k, like you're set, you're golden. So
1: yeah, um he mentioned that it's actually pretty easy to achieve these temperatures in uh yeah. the lab. 20
2: to, like, 30K, you could, like, realistically, I'm sorry to bring this back to ice cream, but if you, like, you know how <laughs> the liquid nitrogen ice cream was all the rage, right? But, like, mm-hmm. 30K is, like, for a startup company, you could start up a company and be, like, 10 Kelvin ice cream, you know? Like, we yeah. make our ice cream in a cryostat. Well,
1: get the smoothest I- possible ice crystals. There would be some really interesting chemistry that might happen uh, when you go to that low temperature with ice cream, uh, because... We'll talk about it in a bit. We might get okay. we might get to this. Okay, okay. It might not make it in, but there's some interesting <laughs> chemistry when you get to low temperatures, uh, with water specifically. Um, so, uh, he also mentioned that like temperature is not the the difficult part. You can get to low sub mm-hmm. or like low Kelvin temperatures. Um, there's other problems, and we're going to talk about those later. But I wanted to jump okay. into how this glycine is actually formed. So we have no light. We have no mm-hmm. energy. So how mm-hmm. do you think that these interactions are occurring? I wanted to pull the audience. Um, so can
2: we just, so you said we have no light or energy, but real, like we have the tiniest amount of energy, right? Like that's what he was saying. We before. have like
0: thermal energy.
2: Nope. In but UV, not very much of it. There's UV I mean, rays there is a v- from the molecules themselves.
1: Okay. Yeah. There's a right? very little amount of UV light and but there's not really Mm -hmm. any thermal energy right because we're at 10 kelvin so there is like some molecular movements but but...
0: next to nothing i was gonna say
2: they must have to be like in incredibly close proximity Mm. and Mm -hmm. just bump into each other Mm. accidentally
0: i actually have ideas but i have no idea how stupid this is but like i'm thinking quantum mechanics and like quantum tunneling and this kind of thing
1: Okay. Okay. Quantum. So
0: because, because in quantum mechanics, there's a non-zero probability that you can tunnel your way through an energetic barrier.
1: Hmm. Okay. Interesting. That's not it. (laughs) So,
4: okay. 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 It's a really interesting
1: concept and maybe it does play into it. I mean, uh, these, these scientists aren't out in the clouds of space observing what's right. happening. We're simulating those conditions and doing it in the lab. So I have a clip of Dr. Yopolo explaining how this happens, but okay. I'm I'm going to give more information about the, the actual process, the chemistry process, um, mm-hmm. for you and for our listeners before he jumps into how it happens okay. in space. So the process mm-hmm. that's involved is radical addition reactions. For those that aren't familiar with radicals, maybe you've heard of free radicals in your body or... We're not talking about, like, the ones that are out marching for social justice. We're talking about (laughs) atoms. Um, And a radical is an atom-molecular ion that has an unpaired valence electron. And Mm -hmm. they can be formed in many different ways, but for our purposes, they can be formed uh, by ionizing radiation and heat. Mm -hmm. And many chemical reactions have radicals as intermediates, but you don't end up seeing them in the balanced equation. So, like, a lot of reactions actually occur through radical intermediates but Mm
4: -hmm. you don't
1: think about it because you just see the starting stuff goes to the final stuff and you often don't see what happens in the middle so um yeah radicals they have an unpaired electron which makes them very reactive
2: but you said they're formed through ionizing radiation and heat so i'm just wondering how they're formed in these clouds that don't have ionizing radiation
1: or heat well let's let dr Yopolo discuss the surface interactions that occur
3: Yeah. So uh, you basically have uh, in these clouds you have grains that are say 10 kelvin, 10, 20 kelvin, and uh, those are constantly bombarded by uh, atoms, radicals, and uh, and saturated molecules. They are in the gas phase in the surrounding environment. So basically, what happens is that all this material slowly condenses on top of these grains, forming a first layer of ice. Those material that if you think about the composition of the interstellar medium is mostly hydrogen molecular and atomic the more dense the cloud is the more molecular hydrogen you are going to have uh, because these clouds are initially they come from a phase that is more diffuse so there is more light and uh, and most of the molecules are actually uh, broken in uh, in their components so there is a lot of there are a lot of atoms in those more diffuse uh, clouds but once they become more and more uh, dense then all these atoms, let's say, either they recombine or they they are they deposit themselves on top of these grains and they react with the material that is there. So they kind of deplete, and there you are left mostly with H2 as a main component. Uh, but so basically, this chemistry is induced by this bombardment of of materials like hydrogen atom, carbon atoms, oxygen atoms, nitrogen atoms. Those are the with hydrogen, the most common, and the others are just like traces, those are the, still the most abundant uh, species that you get in the gas phase. And then, of course, you have some radicals that were formed in the, in the gas phase, or some molecules that can be deposited. For instance, the most abundant one that is formed in the gas phase and gets deposited is CO. And that there is a lot of chemistry as well. But that is a chemistry that happens a little bit later in the evolution of the cloud. So you were right,
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I figured because all ice, as far as I'm aware, ice always forms from grains, even on Earth, right? Like you see in the formation of a snowflake, you have the clustering of ice crystals around the center that expand outwards. Mm-hmm. This is just like crystallization is a process that happens from it typically happens from a n- nucleus, I guess, the starting point, mm-hmm. which is a grain. Um, but so so I guess it's just the. It sounds like it's just the random flying around of
1: atoms. Yeah. So we have we have all of these. <laughs> They're just flying around. Yeah. We have hydrogen and these radicals yeah. all floating around. And um, Dr. Yopolo. Can you? Mm-hmm.
2: Sorry. Did you have another clip you were about to pick? Because I, so d- I have a question. Okay. Can I just quickly ask, what's the difference between molecular hydrogen and atomic hydrogen? Which
1: I think is what he said. Molecular hydrogen is Ooh. H2. Oh, do you want to take yeah. this, Beth? Uh. Okay, go ahead.
0: I was going to I was going to put into practice my little bit of chemistry knowledge because a molecule is more than one atom. Oh yeah. So atomic true. hydrogen is just one atom of hydrogen. Yes. Whereas okay. mo- molecular hydrogen is H2. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Yes.
1: And hydrogen that is makes, often found on sense. earth as H2 because it's diatomic.
2: Yeah, it's more stable that way. Yeah. Because exactly. it has that unpaired electron
1: that it wants to pair. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: Hmm, yeah. more unpaired electrons, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have we have the
1: molecular hydrogen and the atomic hydrogen yeah. radicals all floating around in the gas phase. And uh, Dr. yopolo went on to say what happens next.
3: Okay, but water forms basically through the hydrogenation of atomic oxygen, molecular oxygen, or ozone on top of these surfaces. And therefore, you have formation of water and hydrogen peroxide. And uh, then... You get also a little bit of nitrogen there, and that can hydrogenize, and then you, you get the ammonia, carbon that uh, gets hydrogenated, then you get the methane. But while you are forming all these molecules, saturated molecules, you also, since it is a slow process, you have all these radicals present in the ice. So what we were studying, it was like the possibility that actually some of these radicals would form next to each other. And if they form next to each other independently from each other, they if assuming that they have the right orientation, they can react with each other barrierlessly, which means they don't need any energetic input to, to make the final product. So let's say you have um, a precursor of, uh, of methylamine, which is the NH2CH2 radical, which basically lacks one hydrogen to the CH group, and there you will get methylamine. But if you have that, the precursor of methylamine, and that is formed next to the uh, precursor of uh, formic acid or CO2, which is the HOCO, we call it it's H-O-O, uh, HCOO uh, radical. Basically, these two, if they are formed next to each other, they could basically uh, recombine, and therefore you get glycine. So
2: Ugh, I, there's something about this that I just love, because the, w- what's interesting chemistry, I guess, or interesting, the thing about chemistry on Earth is there are all these barriers to energy, and like, you can't just put molecules side by side and have them form something because, I don't know, they're in a substrate, and they are usually already super stable the way they are, but because, I guess, the cold darkness of space is such a stabilizing substrate itself, all of these radicals can just hang out and, like, recombine, which is, it's just wild to think about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, no, but that I just, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> I'm just, like, it's, yeah, yeah. It's incredible to think about a place where all of these radicals, like, you're told radicals are so unstable and, like, but they're really only unstable in the circumstances that are present on Earth, it sounds like, like, in mm-hmm. these dark cold clouds they're actually they're, they're stable
1: mm-hmm. well and, and because it's so cold you don't have as mm-hmm. much molecular movement i mean there still is some yeah but you know if you if you think the difference between 10 kelvin and room temperature which is 298 kelvin <laughs> the the molecules in yeah. that room temperature are whizzing around they're spinning they're, they're, they're stretching yeah, they're yeah, yeah, doing yeah, all that yeah. and if you're at 10 kelvin they're kind of they're a lot slower they're a lot more chill you know i'm doing a little dance com- can yeah, we just
2: yeah i can't see it but um just to clarify for both like probably for our listeners a little bit for me Mm -hmm. the there's a difference between like atoms vibrating is temperature not moving right like movement can happen like he was saying in in gases especially in these gases in these cold dark clouds the atoms are moving around they're floating i guess but their vibrational energy is what
1: is the temperature good question um ooh, you're really you're really diving into my thermodynamics Sorry. knowledge beth maybe you can maybe you can uh, i think
0: yeah you're diving into mine as well like okay, I I, my instinct is to see your eyes, you yeah.
2: because i think like and the reason i think there's the vibrational energy usually pushes them further apart which why gases mm-hmm. are associated mm-hmm. with higher heat mm-hmm. because it's easier to yeah. push things apart that's why gases expand when you're vibrating really really a lot against something else you're bound to push it away from you but yeah it's not it's not the whizzing about itself that is the heat it's the vibration of the molecule or
1: atom itself okay thermochemists don't at me um or do Mm -hmm. send (laughs) (laughs) an email to phd atoms Atoms are just a
2: bunch of shivering people like picture if you're really really cold you're shivering a lot well this is the inverse (laughs) for atoms atoms that are really really hot are shivering a lot yeah. And atoms that are really, really cold are not shivering
1: very much. That's a good way to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh I thought now would be a good time to bring up a figure from the paper. So I I have the okay. figure here, you can you can open it. Mm-hmm. And again, this will be posted on our Instagram and Facebook so you can follow along at home. But um Dr. Yopolo mentioned a bunch of different radicals that can form. So I'm going to just describe this figure and then um we'll continue on to the formation of glycine on these ices. So each blue ring in this figure represents an additional hydrogenation step, the addition of a hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Horizontal or diagonal arrows are radical-radical recombination interactions. So you have two radicals kind of clicking together, almost like magnets coming together. The orange arrows are non-energetic surface reaction routes that they tested in lab conditions. So these are um, reactions that are happening without the addition of energy. And the gray arrows are reactions that mm-hmm. were looked at in this specific paper. So you can see that there's kind yeah. of you start with carbon, nitrogen, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen, and mm-hmm. uh, or oxygen, I think that is. Yeah. And but hydrogen's in the rings. So yeah, yeah, sorry. Is there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then just by adding hydrogens,
2: yeah. you
1: can form these radicals and kind of it's almost I, th- I think of it like Lego, like
0: yeah,
2: putting exactly. it all together.
1: Yeah,
0: this is wild. This is I'm struggling to follow this diagram. How can I help? Can you can you explain it again once more? Alexa? Sure.
1: So on the outer ring, you have kind of precursors that are floating around in the gas phase in these okay. clouds, and then as you yeah. move in, the rings, you're adding hydrogens. Mm-hmm. Each step is an addition of hydrogen because hydrogen's okay. everywhere. It's the most abundant in the gas phase.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And so then from these precursors, you can form radicals and other stable species. And so the horizontal or diagonal arrows are two radicals interacting, radical-radical recombinations. Okay. Right. Orange arrows are non-energetic surface reaction routes that have been tested in lab okay. conditions. So these are the ones that we know okay. can exist in the lab. Mm-hmm. And then yep. the gray ones are the ones that they did in this paper.
0: OK. Uh, OK, all right. I am now with you.
1: OK. Um, and so. With this figure in front of you, I think this next clip from Dr. Iopolo on the formation of glycine um, will be very informative. Let me just find the clip. Let
0: me put glycine and this next to each other so I can remember what glycine is made
1: of. Glycine's I at think the very top. the
2: one at the top, yeah. The oh, okay. NH2, oh, okay.
1: NH2CH3COOH. No, sorry, Lovely. CH2. I can't actually read it. Yeah. I'm looking at a it's tiny bad. little figure. So in this next oh. clip, Dr. Iopolo explains the formation of glycine.
3: So, the formation of glycine, the way we started it, uh, it is mostly important through dark chemistry in the pre-stellar cores where there is no protostar yet. So, the collapse of the cloud didn't happen yet. That means that also the densities are not so high yet. There is kind of, we are more or less in the transition between the diffuse clouds and the very, very dense core of a cloud. And so in these conditions is where you form water on interstellar grains. And indeed, we know that the first layer of ice that is formed on top of the interstellar grains is a water ice rich And in, inside this, you have water, ammonia, uh, methane, and uh, CO2. There is a little bit of CO that is also deposited there. And uh, and perhaps formic acid. And all these ingredients are actually important to the formation of glycine. So you can see that we
1: have this precursor starting and building up to glycine. Um, and so we can kind of understand this all from a theoretical standpoint, like through computational chemistry or theoretical chemistry. Um, but Or we can just spend $30,000 and get a Kraustat and <laughs> do it ourselves. <laughs> well, exactly. So um, we actually need to confirm this in the lab because um, yeah. we can talk about radical radical additions forever. but. If you can't actually make it in the lab, it's less useful. So here's Dr. Yopolo talking about how the lab has confirmed
3: these reaction schemes. So the first thing we did was to try to reproduce these conditions to get the right radicals formed in the same ice, in the same water-rich ice, and see whether those would recombine. And we identified glycine in these ices. Then we went back and we looked into whether we could form the precursor of the precursor. So Say methylamine and see whether methylamine also was formed through the same reaction process. And we indeed found it also methylamine. So, from a laboratory point of view, we confirmed this reaction scheme. But then we needed to also investigate uh, the the importance of this reaction scheme uh, into like a space uh, relevant, its space relevance. And so we had to include some models for that, that were actually simulating the conditions first in the lab. Test the models, and then back to the space, to the space conditions, to see whether whether well, actually this will lead to uh, an amount of amount of glycine that is relevant to what we observe now in the solar system, for instance. So basically, this is uh, the the short story. So,
1: make the precursor of the precursor, and go back from there.
2: I just can't imagine, like, their system must have to be so clean, though. Right. Because if you're Mm. trying to show that you can form from just starting with water and carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, that you can form these other like glycine. It's not like glycine isn't just around in water. You know, it is, especially on Earth. I mean, not necessarily. Well, apparently in space now we've learned, but (laughs) like making sure that your water and your starting materials are just so clean and not contaminated with any of these molecules you're looking for. Mm hmm. Because then also these molecules, if they're in them, are going to contribute to the reactions themselves. Mm -hmm. Not so much Mm, that like you couldn't. like If you started with water with a little bit of glycine in it, and then at the end you had water with a lot more glycine in it, you could reasonably predict that that glycine was formed through your mechanisms described. But the issue is, is whether or not that original amount of contamination actually contributed to the reactions and is what did it, not the starting materials themselves. Mm-hmm. I guess you mm-hmm. maybe there's also mathematical methods to kind of subtract that possibility as well
1: Well it's funny you mentioned yeah. mathematical methods because this paper I should say it was really interesting to read a paper from nature astronomy um, mm-hmm. not a journal that I really dabble in yeah. um, <laughs> and the, the the way that it was laid out was a bit different but they did mm-hmm. so many different things it was really interesting that they did yeah uh, this lab experiment which we'll talk more about the formation of these ices in lab in the, in under clean conditions, as you mentioned, Sienna. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then as, as, he, as Dr. Yopolo kind of mentioned at the end of the clip there, they had to do modeling to confirm yeah. that, you know, what they were doing in the lab was working. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, I have a clip here about how relevant their lab work is to actual space conditions through mm-hmm. model confirmation. Yeah, there was
3: one key key, uh, thing that the models, sorry to interrupt you, that they actually find out that uh, because you can imagine that uh, if you start putting all these radicals uh, in the ice and you have to have like two, three, four reactions in line to occur in order to get to your complex molecule, in this case uh, is glycine, well that, that basically lowers your chances to form that molecule, right? So, but the models show us that actually one reaction that involved ammonia instead of methylamine and a CH radical, which is formed when you form also methane. So if a CH radical was formed next to an ammonia molecule within the water ice, immediately you will get already the radical that you need for, uh, for the, the precursor of methylamine, the, the CH2NH2. And that, that way, basically we were skipping some of the steps in the formation of methylamine and we were using a way more abundant molecule that we know that is very abundant in space, like ammonia, to form that radical that we needed. And the OCO, the other radical, the second one, it's also very abundant because we know that uh, CO2 in this kind of environment is formed through the reaction of OH plus CO. And you form in, the first thing you form is this intermediate, this OCO ra- radical, and that can dissociate again into, into CO2 or it can be hydrogenated into uh, formic acid or maybe CO2 as well, and then with other products. So you, it is a key radical in the formation of CO2 in, in these environments. So and we know the CO2 is also abundant in these ices. So we know that these two radicals must be there abundantly. And the, the models tested this route that was not maybe perhaps so relevant in the laboratory experiment. But it is definitely relevant in space and the proof that that our dark chemistry actually allows the formation of glycine, abundant glycine in space in pre-stellar cores.
0: So you can kind of go backwards and forwards in this diagram. Mm -hmm.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: That's cool. That makes sense as well. And it also makes sense as to like how you can then increase your chances of getting there by like trying out different routes and adding up all of the, yeah. the ways of doing it. Yeah.
1: And so, yeah. Uh, they are since these are reversible, uh, deposition can occur, but also abstraction or taking away of hydrogen can occur. And this makes for some really interesting chemistry uh,
3: that I think is super cool. I'm going to play this clip now. And another very interesting thing is that... Um, actually the the abstraction reaction from glycine abstracts the nitrogen from the alpha carbon of glycine, which is basically the the carbon that bonds to the R group that leads you to all the protogenic uh, amino acids. So through the same dark chemistry, you not just uh, form glycine, but potentially you can also form all the other important uh, uh, amino acids uh, to life so the, the the simplest other one that you can form is alanine but you also have serine and you can form any other one that you have and actually if you look at those the R group of those simple other simple amino acids are also radicals present in the same kind of ice because for alanine for instance uh, you just remove one hydrogen in the right place which happens and then you need to add the, just the ch3 radical there which is also present because it's one of the precursors of methane, which is in this uh, is present in these water recharges. And the same thing is for the serine, you just need to add the CH2H, which is also a precursor of methanol, another abundant molecule that we know that is formed through the chemistry in space. So it's quite straightforward. We still need to work to this. We need to prove it, we need to do the experiments. And so that's where we want to go next. Probably this is one of your questions later. But uh, but but basically, in theory, this is not just proving that glycine is formed, but that uh, mo- all the important uh, uh, amino acids for life, they can form under these conditions, through these mechanisms.
1: That's so cool! <laughs> I, When he said that, um, I don't know if I appreciated it during the interview, but in editing these clips together, the fact that the abstraction, the taking away of the hydrogen is the specific hydrogen on glycine that other amino acid groups have different things on. It's it, yeah. it, It's perfect. Like it's, you can form anything. I would be surprised to see tryptophan,
2: <laughs> but. <laughs> is tryptophan the one with the benzene? And uh, tryptophan is the one with the benzene and like the one that has five, uh, five oh. carbon attached to a benzene. Tryptophan opinion.
1: is quite complex. Uh, it
2: looks like a W with a closed top
1: kind of. right. <laughs> Right, right, <laughs>
0: I'm going to have to go and look for pictures of yeah, it. I
1: didn't, I didn't include tryptophan on in our examples, but if you look no. at the example photo that I, I made, um, you can kind of see that if you just pull off that hydrogen, you can pop on a bunch of different things. And like he said, yeah. a lot of those simpler things are already there, already radicals yeah. ready to just click on. It's totally like Lego. I just think... Mm-hmm. It's so.
0: So you don't have to like take that hydrogen, do something complicated to it, and then find your way back to this molecule. You just like happen to take it off, and then no worries because there's something sitting right next to you that's happy to take that space. Yeah.
1: And the other cool thing is that like amino acids are the building blocks of us. Like amino acids are cool, but I think they're really cool because we take amino acids, our bodies take amino acids and form proteins, which, you know, Mm -hmm. form. Okay. I guess. Yeah. Cells aren't completely made of amino acids, but Lego on Lego on Lego. Yeah. It's like, it's the (laughs) the
3: building blocks. And I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It's it's thrown around a lot, but it really is like Lego building blocks clicking and unclicking without energy. I just want to remind you, this is dark chemistry. There's, there's no energy happening. This is barrierless radical (laughs) interaction. Um, there's so, 10 Kelvin worth of energy. The big yeah, question, you don't well. don't need to
0: give them a show. Yeah. yeah. The
1: big question, of course, is how much does it cost? This is what I put in my notes was in fun letters. How much does it cost? Because I think it's so cool. Um, I wish that our
0: listeners could see Alice's body language when he discusses these things. I know. We should make this <laughs> a video
1: podcast just for my yeah. flailing <laughs> arms. Um, but the answer is time. It takes time. And yeah. that is that is okay. the cost. So here's Dr. Iopolo talking about the timescales that this exists on.
3: Yeah, so that's a very good question, because it implies several things. Uh, so first of all, let's start with, uh, with space. So timescales in space, as you said, they're very long. There is no problem there. You can go out to a million of years before you actually see a decent amount of molecules formed in these regions. So indeed uh, the molecule, the, the models that we were running they were uh, they were running up to 10 to the 6 years or so. So yeah, we are about a million of year. That was because that was that's the usual considered at the time when the collapse starts from a dark cloud then you have more or less this time for the collo- for the for the cloud to collapse. But of course in space like it doesn't mean that uh, if everything starts collapsing, then it's going to form a star, and, and that's like a certain process. It could be that this uh, this collapsing uh, goes in cycles as well. So then it takes longer for, for this cloud to become a solar-like system. So in principle, you have a lot of time in space for that. and uh, But that's the overall time. If you're looking at the formation of a single molecule, uh, then uh, you can think that uh, more or less, on average, you get one hydrogen atom landing on one grain per day in space. So that's more or less the rate that you have. And uh, and uh, yeah, that will initiate a reaction that will be basically instantaneous compared to all the other time scales. So we are talking about a very short time for the hydrogen to, to move and react into the ice or the sorb again. So that is not going to take long for the hydrogen. And uh, and if you form uh, two species next to each other, then they can react. They also will react immediately. So the time scales are very, very, very short in that case. So the reaction time is still what you would expect on Earth, basically. But the the, the overall uh, abundance that you get, it, that is piled in, uh, in millions of years. One hydrogen
0: a day, that makes
1: sense. A hydrogen a day keeps the glycine like- at bay.
2: Um, Um, Have you been waiting long to say that joke, Alistair? No, I just
1: came up with that In fact, I think a better one would be (laughs) A a hydrogen a day keeps the not-yet-a-doctors at bay
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you had your daily hydrogen? Yeah, no, like one hydrogen a day Compared to millions of years Mm -hmm. It makes sense how these things become relatively abundant
1: Yeah and so I asked yeah. Dr. Yopolo, then how do we simulate that in the lab? Because something that's always interested mm-hmm. me about space is, you know, things happen on very, very, very large timescales in space. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually what I said at the beginning of that question was, you know, millions of years. Um, and so we can't really speed that process up. I mean, we can. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm always interested how we deal with simulating time in the lab.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So anyway, here is Dr. Yopolo explaining how we simulate this in the lab.
3: So it's a very slow process. So imagine that you are a PhD student, not hard for you to imagine. And you have to do this, this job, right? And then you 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 cannot wait one atom to land on your substrate per day, right? Otherwise, you won't see anything. Unless you have very, very good techniques to look at that atom. And that is a different PhD than what I've done. That would be actually very cool. but. Uh, if you use a system like the one that I used and I built, uh, then you need high fluxes. So the fluxes that we we look at are something between ten to the eleventh, ten to the thirteen uh, atoms per square centimeters per second. So the, we you have a lots of atoms uh, per square centimeters uh, every second. So yeah,
0: but then but then uh, um pv equals nrt don't you risk heating your system up or am i just at completely different scales
1: if you increase the number of depositions per second like if
0: you increase your pressure no it's by increasing
1: the, the number of the pressure's not increasing the flux is increasing the more... So you
0: send them through and then they go out again.
1: Uh no Because you...
0: my like my thing is that, like if you have a box, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you like send in a load of hydrogen, then the more hydrogen you get in it, the higher the pressure is gonna go.
2: Right, but it's in a cryostat machine that is right? so temperature controlled, right? So it's yeah, yeah, okay.
1: Gotta be
0: yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. I
1: mean, actually, this is a, this is a good point, Beth. This actually leads into my next clip. Um, okay. They don't. So they're they're continuously creating a vacuum. This is happening mm-hmm. in vacuum, right? Because mm-hmm. uh-huh. they're simulating space. And yeah. so, y- you're right that adding hydrogen in would increase the pressure if you weren't continuously taking it out.
0: Okay, they're the continuously bucket. extracting it as well. Yeah. All right. So anything that doesn't land gets extracted and recycled.
1: I don't know if it gets recycled, but it definitely gets extracted. Okay, it gets um, extracted at least. This, this works really well into the next clip. Um, I mentioned earlier okay. that there are some serious limitations to the work that they do, and it's not getting to low temperatures, uh, okay. but it is this thing. So here is the experimental limitations.
3: So one of the limits that I, I was saying at the beginning is actually the pressure we we don't reach the pressure the even the densest pressure that you have in space we cannot reach in a laboratory we are still order of magnitudes above that and uh, that's because of the te- technology that, to, that uh, is available at the moment that you cannot push the vacuum to that kind of uh, emptiness uh, <laughs> so basically uh, you end up having some contamination on top of it which is mostly either hydrogen or that doesn't really pile on top of it so it's not a big deal but the most uh, problematic one is actually water that uh, gets deposited slowly on top of it and uh, yeah from from the, the, uh, the Langmuir uh, definition of uh, deposition rate you know that you get one monolayer of whatever species you have in your gas phase if the pressure of that species in the chamber is at 10 to the minus 6 tor per second you basically have one monolayer per second so basically if you are at uh, usually we operate at 10 to the minus 10 so we are orders of magnitude below that we don't build a monolayer in seconds but in a few hours usually in three hours you might get one monolayer of water and that is already kind of like the beginning of your limit when you say, OK, then if I go beyond that, then my experiment is not going to be the same as it was at the beginning of the, uh, the experiment. So the end will not be the same at the beginning. And so you, you want to stop there. So with a better vacuum, we could do longer experiments. Mm-hmm.
1: And lower fluxes.
3: And lower fluxes, yes. But then you need longer PCBs. <laughs> yeah. Three years would not be enough.
1: So.
0: I like this guy.
1: He was, it was a really good job <laughs> that we had. Yeah.
0: <gasps> okay wait a minute so tor was the unit that he
1: used yeah he said 10 to the minus 6 tor is the Langmuir definition that you get a monolayer per second but they're, they're below that I think okay. it's really interesting that they are achieving low pressures but it's still far above the densest clouds in space like the pressure in space okay. is much 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 lower than what yeah. they are achieving yeah. Um, space is wild, man. <laughs> space is wild. So this episode is coming out after your episode on ETA. And we talked a lot yep. about cryostats and mm-hmm. getting low pressures and stuff. And so yeah, it's yeah. very similar what they're doing uh, just for yeah. a different science. So obviously, I'm a huge chemistry nerd. I do analytical chemistry. And the section on the analysis techniques that they used was kind of a footnote in the paper, which in like papers that I read, it's not the footnote. Like you put in instrumentation, materials, methods, like, you know, in this paper, Mm -hmm. it was more of a, I mean, they did a lot in this paper, but it was more of a side note. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: That didn't stop me from asking all about the different (laughs) instrumental techniques that they used to look at glycine in these ices. So the first technique was quadrupole mass spectrometry with temperature programmed desorption. Oh my God. You must have been stoked. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna let Dr. Yovelo talk about the mass spectrometry that they did.
3: So, and uh, for the for the quadrupole mass spectrometry that we use, we also use a regular uh, quadrupole uh, system. So it's also very commercial, not uh, not cutting edge or anything. You can use something more fancy. There are people using time of flights, for instance. And where they actually can uh, time the t- the the moment when uh, your their species reach the detector, and this depends on the mass. So then you have like a selection for the masses, but we just use a quadrupole. And uh, for that, we because it's at the back of your of our uh, sample. So we do our experiment on one side. Once we finish our irradiation or codeposition of whatever, and we are done with the infrared, we turn our sample facing the quadrupole. And with a quadruple quite close to the substrate, we start warming up the ice uh, with a constant rate. And that's the temperature program absorption desorption experiment, where you actually are uh, basically heating the ice uh, with this rate that you select. And you keep it constant, so you don't want to change that. But that basically allows all the molecules to come off the ice at a rate that is dependent to the, uh, to the heating rate that you have and on the ice that you are actually deposited as well. So all the volatile species will come off first, and then the less volatile species will come later. So to give you some numbers, CO, that we were talking about before, O2 or also N2, they all come off around 30 Kelvin. And uh, then water comes off around uh, 150 Kelvin. CO2 is around uh, 70, 80 Kelvin, something like that. And in our experiment, glycine came off around 245 Kelvin. But if you have a pure layer of glycine, so if you have a lot of glycine that is not embedded in different ices. So in our case, we had a lot of glycine that was formed in isolation. So each molecule was isolated from the others. And those came off earlier than, uh, than when you have a very thick layer of glycine deposited. That usually comes off uh, about above room temperature, probably. Ooh. Interesting, right?
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, when he said 240-something, I was like, oh, that's pretty close to room temperature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty close. Yeah. 268. So,
1: uh...
0: So, can you describe the... Uh, this might get cut out, but I'm interested. Can you describe the technique a bit more? Just because... Uh, what do they use the quadruples for?
1: So I have in my notes here. Someday I will do an episode on quadrupole mass spectrometry. Anyway, and move on to the next <laughs> section. Um, but I'll give you a quick little a teaser. Someday I'll do an episode mm-hmm. on okay. it because it is really interesting, and I've a couple of times now said oh, I have to yeah. do. I've done the plasmas now. I need to do the mass spectrometry. Mm-hmm. Um, so the quadrupole is what selects for the mass. Um, so you have these ions that are created, and mm-hmm. I'm talking about. So my background is inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry, so that's how I know how the quadrupole mass spectrometry works. In a quadrupole, you have four poles. Two are polarized mm. one way, like positive, and two are polarized, negative, and that mm-hmm. alternates, which causes your ions as they fly through to spin, like not just spin themselves, but like go in a helical
0: yeah, trajectory. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, um, Like a spiral.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And if you have the right current going through the quadrupole and you're flipping them at the right way, only a certain mass to charge ratio will have a stable path through some will get spun too much and hit the sides some mm-hmm. won't get spun enough and kind of just peter out but if you have the perfect if you if you tune it for the right mass that mass only that mass to charge ratio only will have a perfect helical spin through the quadrupole. Oh, that
4: makes sense. and then we'll hit your
1: detector and your de- detector basically just says i've been hit or not and so that's why the quadrupole is so important because if you have yeah. things that have similar mass to charge ratios or the same mass to charge ratio, they'll both spin through correctly, but yeah. you only want one of them. But your detector doesn't yeah. know. Your detector's like, I've been hit. I haven't. I've been hit. Mm-hmm. yeah, Not yeah, hit. yeah. And so it can't tell if it's been hit by yeah. what you want or what you don't want. Mm-hmm. The temperature dependent desorption is actually a really interesting part of this mm-hmm. experiment. He talked about it a little bit at the end there. Um, yeah. but it's not just dependent on what the ice is made of, but it's also dependent on something else. So okay. I want you both, before I play this clip, I want you both to think think of non-Newtonian fluids. Okay. And Which,
0: if you ha- don't know what they are, go back and listen to our very first episode yes. ever. Yes. So, what, and the question was,
2: what contributes to the temperature that they slide off the ice at? Yeah. So, and is this... How are they coming off the ice? This is desorption. So, but are Mm -hmm. they going into a liquid form or into a gas form? Gas. Gas. So they go straight Mm -hmm. from solid to gas. Yeah. So what could this possibly have to do with (laughs) non-nutrient?
1: I don't know if you'll get it. (laughs) But this also ties into, Sienna, you mentioned earlier making Kelvin ice cream. And I said, if you start making ice cream at really, really low temperatures, some interesting things happen. So I'll play this clip and you can can think about the ice cream that you're going to be making at 10 Kelvin.
3: And uh, there, there are studies showing that actually the temperature of the of these complex species depend on their environment. And it's true also for the simple species that, that we are interested on. So CO, CO2, methane, ammonia, water, and so on, because they can co-desorb. So they dissolve together. So even if you have a molecule like CO, that should absorb 30 Kelvin. Mix it with a lot of water. A little bit will be lost around 30, 40 Kelvin. So you see that already you're delaying it a little bit because molecule needs to diffuse before desorption. But some of it will be trapped in the water and they will come off when the water starts changing the, its structure. So you know the water, if it's deposited at low temperature with CO, so around 30, 10 Kelvin, it will be deposited amorphous. But if you deposit at high temperature, so let's say 140 Kelvin, it will be crystalline. And uh, so there is the crystallization process that up at a higher temperature in, the va- in vacuum. And uh, what, what happens is basically the water is restructuring. And so all the volatile species that were trapped, they suddenly find their space through to, to leave the ice. So you have basically what, uh, what we call like a volcano effect. That at some point, you get a lot of, lot of molecules coming off the ice because of this restructuring of your uh, or lattice. And if you deposit water ice at higher temperature, you manage playing a bit with the pressure, then in, you can also get instead of cubic, you can get hexagonal crystalline water ice. So you can really play with your parameters to get to the kind of structure of your ice that, that you want. And that's something that I was studying when I was at Caltech with the terrace spectroscopy because it's very sensitive on the structure of the lattice of your ice. So I was studying crystalline water ice, amorphous water ice, and they were giving us completely different uh, Spectrum in the terahertz oh yeah that's actually all the complementary important information that you need
2: very cool so it is yeah it's about the frozen structure of water mm-hmm. that's kind of fascinating so this amorphous structure just traps all of the radicals in it there's mm-hmm. no holes for it to slip through but then when you warm it up we're talking still ice though <laughs> warm water warm water ice as opposed to cold water ice <laughs> then it starts to crystallize or like reshape itself. And then these radicals are like, oh, we're free and run out. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. That's pretty extraordinary, really. Yeah.
2: yeah. And amorphous solids are just solids that don't have a organized like, structure to the orientation and placement of their atoms. Exactly. And molecules, I guess.
0: Like yeah. glass?
1: Yes, glasses like an glass is Like
0: glass,
2: right, yeah we, yeah. we did that in the, maybe that was in our quizazode. In- the quizazode. We had a question on what is glass.
1: Oh, it was the quit. see, <laughs> it was the quit- <laughs> Um So Sienna, yeah. but uh, I thought it was also interesting that he's done research into using lasers to change the crystalline structure of Yeah, water ice. right. Um, so again, Sienna, mm-hmm. if you want to make this 10 Kelvin ice cream, you need to get some lasers and some cryostats, and mm-hmm. you're going to have the coolest ice cream I was gonna say the coolest goddamn ice cream. But the so, like, coolest ice cream in the world.
2: Don't you want so the dream for ice cream is to have the smoothest ice cream in the world, right? So you mm-hmm. don't want the crystals, you don't want ice crystals forming in it. Mm-hmm. So you really do want to form it under these like low, lazy, and amorphous... conditions. You want this. I want. The, I want amorphous ice cream. And if there's gl- and if there's glycine in it, we can call it glyc cream. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Um.
1: So. I'm kind of in the last few clips now, last summary a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, so other studies have confirmed the presence of amino acids in ices, formed through mm-hmm. energetic processes, um, but here Dr. Iopolo described why this paper, uh, specifically, was so icebreaking. <laughs> okay. Icebreaking? Like yes. groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. <laughs> groundbreaking. <laughs> groundbreaking.
3: Icebreaking. Okay, here's the clip. And one thing that also was found was that uh, it- most of these uh, amino acids were mostly resilient when they they survived inside water-rich ices, more than any other kind of ices. So if they were pure, they were easily destroyed. If they were mixed with something else, they were surviving a little bit more, and water was the environment where they survived the most, which is great for us because all the glycine that we form is actually in water, ice. That means that whatever was formed Earlier on in, this, in space, might survive throughout the formation of a star and planets, and can be directly included into comets. So when we looked at the, the amount that, of glycine that was found in uh, in the comet 67P uh, by the Rosetta mission, that was done uh, in uh, 2000. Well, I think the mission was around 2014, 2015, when they when the when the Rosetta was going around the comet, and the paper was from 2016. And They've detected glycine there, and uh, their abundance of glycine is uh, is just about a little bit more, or like the double of what we found in our experiment and our models combined together. Which means that at least 50% uh, according to our models, 50% of the glycine that is in this comet might have uh, actually an interstellar origin. As was also by the author of this paper. So their observation also suggested that glycine was not formed in the solar system, it was formed pre- prior to the, solar, the formation of the solar system. So it is all, everything kind of like uh, follows in the right place, basically. We are just putting all the pieces together, and uh, we are completing the puzzle here. And uh, half of the glycine that uh, was observed could be uh, interstellar in nature. So that's that that and we actually specify that comes before the formation of the protostar, so pre-stellar.
0: So the idea that life started in deep sea vents could be superseded by the idea that like or it could at least be contributed to by the idea that like amino acids came to the
1: earth from So, I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's, we talked a lot in our episode about astrobiology about, um, what is life, right? Like when are we Mm -hmm. going to find life? How will we define it? And so the fact that we have amino acids floating out in pre-stellar ices, this is, again, this is ice in space. Where there is no star around, it's not a yeah. solar system. This isn't in the asteroid belt. This is like mm-hmm. dark chemistry, deep space stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we have amino acids there—is that life? I mean, I, no. I'm inclined to doubt. No. But <laughs> no. like, but the no. idea, but yeah, the idea that maybe these bombarding the Earth, right, contributed to it. You do also have to understand that like amino acids are formed on Earth through energetic processes
0: okay yeah Yeah, Yeah, and
2: also like i think it changes our understanding of how much of something and the diversity of something we would need for it to be considered potentially from a life source right like Mm -hmm. if we can form glycine and potentially other simple amino acids within these dark dense clouds and in these space ices that's great but like also, like he says, they're dark and dense, but they're not nearly as dense as anything we can replicate on Earth, on Earth, right? Like, we uh-huh. can't get that. yeah, yeah, yeah And yeah. so just because they're abundant in them doesn't mean they're at the abundance that we see here, or we would consider to be lifelike.
0: Yeah, that's completely fair. So then I guess maybe it's the opposite that, like, I guess as you were saying, Sienna, that, like, then if we see these things in the atmosphere of Venus or yeah. elsewhere then we have to I think it's be yeah. more careful before saying that that's likely to be life
2: well but again like Alistair was saying those are those are still probably formed by energetic processes yeah yeah and there are energetic processes that can form glycine abiotically yeah, okay. without life mm-hmm. as well i think i think it's just interesting to consider all of like these molecules that we consider to be related to life amino acids i guess are not necessarily like are not necessarily are clearly not related to life in every Mm -hmm. circumstance or case Mm -hmm. they just exist and probably that's why life has them
1: yeah Mm -hmm. another thing that i thought was really interesting in this paper and that's why we discussed it Mm -hmm. is uh, they confirmed the presence of glycine in a comet that passed Mm -hmm. by earth in 2015 Mm -hmm. and then they were able to relate the abundance of glycine in the ice on that comet to Mm -hmm. it being from a pre-stellar origin, which like just the number of things that this paper went through the, the, you know, the mass spectrometry and and IR, the modeling, Mm. the, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Dr. Yopal and I talked a lot about, uh, Monte Carlo methods and stuff, which I left <laughs> oh, out. Oh, I would this. love to hear that. Well, I, I left it out because for time uh, and for listeners' interest. Um, but if you'd like mm-hmm. to hear more about Monte Carlo methods, I do have clips on it. Um, and then also just that they made them in the lab. They confirmed them through modeling. They mm-hmm. confirmed them with the comet. Like, it's just, it's yeah. it's such a beautiful paper. I, I,
0: yeah. Yeah,
2: it really goes, runs the whole gambit.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, to relate to Beth, what you brought up in Sienna, what you're talking about—the life being out there—I um, mm-hmm. asked one kind of final question to Dr. IoPolo um, mm-hmm. about. Well, here's some final thoughts. Kind mm-hmm. of, why do we care?
3: Well, the the important message here uh, is that um, uh, energetic processing, so photons, will dissociate molecules. Uh, without really distinguishing what kind of bonds you have there. You just start breaking bonds apart if you have enough energy to do so. While the surface chemistry that we are looking into, because of the low energy that is involved in that, you can only uh, induce a certain kind of reactions and therefore only certain molecules can be formed as much more selective as a process. And because, as I was saying, you can subtract hydrogen from the alpha carbon of glycine, if and we know the glycine forms through their chem- chemistry. So through their chemistry, you can also form all the other important uh, prestellar uh, important uh, amino acids for life, and that means that if those molecules and all these important molecules are formed in space, uh, even before stars and planets are formed, that means that uh, all these uh, high complexity, chemical complexity in space is way more ubiquitous than we thought before. And uh, the degree of complexity, we still don't know. So we don't know where the limit of that is. And so it is way more likely that life is elsewhere than just on Earth. It is true that the solar system is quite special. We don't see many many solar systems like out there. There is always something that is off. It is not just like our system, no, like our planet. But because all the ingredients are out there, probably even before stars are formed, there is a very likely uh, probability that uh, there are other systems. As soon as you have the right conditions, you should be able to form a, some kind of form of life or or s- something similar to life, because you don't need all the conditions that we have in our solar system to get everything there and form there—you have a lot of stuff already everywhere. So that's the that's the main message that uh, is uh, is quite important, I would say. It's one more little step in understanding this kind of process that lead to the formation of life in space. So again, moving away from our unique conditions that we always thought that we were in the center of the universe, right? So yeah. We're not as special exactly another another indication that we are not so so special <laughs> that's cool i think
0: yeah i agree yeah
1: hmm. thoughts feelings
0: i have complicated
2: thoughts and feelings about this of just because these amino acids are everywhere in space like i said before he already talked about it not being very dense and it probably not as abundant but also the fact that life like life probably isn't existing at 10 Kelvin. And we know that once you introduce light and heat energy, these molecules break down. Like to me, it doesn't follow that just because these molecules can be made in surface chemistry without energy doesn't mean once you introduce energy, they can't be unmade. Right. And that doesn't mean they're going to also then accumulate all in one spot to create life. Not that I don't think there isn't, I think there's a huge potential for life out in outer space, but this this logic doesn't make sense to me, but <laughs> I, I I think it's a like it's yeah, there's a good point to be made about the fact that there are complex molecules out throughout space or more complex than we suspected maybe originally.
0: I guess maybe like the more places you find that make or in which things like this can be made, the more probable it is that there are also being made into systems that we would know as life Mm
4: -hmm.
0: so i guess like i get i do completely get what you're saying sienna Mm
4: -hmm.
0: on the other hand maybe just like a balance of probabilities means that like the more times you find this kind of thing like the more improbable it is that life isn't out there yeah Yeah,
2: maybe it's interesting also of like we know that life exists in space because we are here and the earth is here, right? Like, so we already know that. So I think it's more interesting to think about how these molecules could contribute and how that tells what that tells us about their existence in space and our own existence, whether or not they are evidence that this happens again. Yeah. I mean, I think there's better. I think the fact that we're here is better evidence for the fact that it could happen again. You know, Mm. I agree with that. It's a good point. But I think I, it, think I think I think it's an interesting additional piece of evidence to how maybe it could happen or how yeah, how yeah. much more like yeah the idea of amino acids being sort of unique to Earth and life is not true mm-hmm. it, yeah. they're not unique to Earth and life they're in dark dense yeah. clouds where there is no life presumably yeah. <laughs> unless it's like an incredibly different life form that we would just never understand like I think it'd be hard for us to understand a life form that
1: exists at ten. Yeah Kelvin yeah that's mm. life but yeah yeah definitely and i think like i went into this interview and kind of this episode today Mm -hmm. with not even understanding that ice existed in the dark dense clouds of space um like that concept and that was kind of a given for this paper when i when i went into doing the research for this i was kind of drawn to the fact that there's ice in space like ice clouds in space there's glycine in these ice clouds and now here we are talking about the building blocks of life being formed yeah, way out yeah. in space and i i, I agree Sienna. i think the, the logic is uh maybe
2: and maybe it's uh, just that like amino acids are the building blocks of proteins but they aren't the building blocks of life we don't know true. what the building blocks of life are that's right? yeah, okay. be maybe the
1: where it falls short for me yeah and i but i think also like this kind of stuff contributes to our understanding of mm-hmm. space and informs how we go about searching for life on other planets and Mm because you know there's kind of not a formula but we often look at binary star system no not binary star systems we look at star solar systems with a planet that is about the same distance from the sun that has Mm -hmm. evidence of water that you know because those are all things that we find on earth but Mm -hmm. yeah maybe like You know, maybe we just look for the amino acids or maybe we just look for these other things. There's a lot that goes into making life.
0: We kind of discuss a lot of this also in our Astrobiology episode. So if you're left wanting more, (laughs) you can get more there. (laughs)
1: Check out Sienna's episode on Astrobiology. Another really great interview episode.
0: Yeah.
2: But I always think, like, I think it's super interesting to find out because, like, we're looking at so many layers of complexity. And so, like, we're starting with Mm -hmm. things that are really, really simple and can't be divided if you really go way into physics realm but then we're moving up these <laughs> layers and layers of sort of exponential complexity of things and glycine mm-hmm. in these dark dense clouds is way more complex than what maybe what we thought was in space but it's mm-hmm. still not nearly the level of complexity of life yeah. like it's exponentially still far from that but it tells yeah, us yeah, more yeah. about the composition of space and how we can kind of traverse up and down these steps mm-hmm. which i think is interesting
1: mm-hmm that's a cool sword. That's a very good point. You guys are ready for a quiz? Yes! I am so ready for a quiz. Okay. Uh, as always, I need to hear your buzzer sounds first. Uh,
0: oh, gosh. Um, okay, all right. I'm going to go with... Um, that's, like, the building blocks of life. going No, that's the building blocks of the amino acids, like, going together. Okay,
2: okay, yeah. Okay, and mine is just going to be ice cream.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course it is.
4: Right. Because
2: you know that's my favorite uh, bit of complexity yep. in the world.
1: <laughs> Question number 1. What is the temperature in prestellar clouds?
2: I like ice cream. <laughs>
1: I heard Beth first yeah. and I heard from Sienna.
0: Rrr, rrr, I could, I, could <laughs> I couldn't remember my buzzer.
1: <laughs> All right. Go oh, Beth, sorry. My bad. Um
0: 10 Kelvin.
1: Ooh, okay. Uh, Sienna, do you have a better answer?
0: The prestellar
2: clouds. Mm-hmm. Oh, I w- six to ten Kelvin.
1: I'm sorry, the answer I have here is ten to is, twenty Kelvin. Uh, the answer I have here is eighteen degrees Rankin.
2: Um, what? You, you never said anything about Rankin in this episode. Honestly,
1: Beth, I, Beth gets I quit. The point. This qu- quiz is over. <laughs> Beth gets the point. It's 10 Kelvin, which okay. is 18 Rankin, which is negative 263.15 Celsius or negative 441.67 Fahrenheit. So
2: 10 Kelvin. Why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs>
1: because I, cause I also wanted to tease an episode on units because we talk a lot oh, no. about units and someday I'm going to do an episode on units. Oh my God. But okay. if you're curious, Rankin is the Kelvin equivalent for
4: Fahrenheit.
1: Okay. Ranking Kelvin yeah. as Fahrenheit is to Celsius. Mm. I know you didn't <laughs> care, but I cared and I wanted to put it in.
0: I, I enjoyed it, Good. but I also hate you. <laughs>
1: That's why I put it in. Point to Beth. <laughs> okay. With no light or heat, sorry, question two. With no light or heat, through what mechanism is glycine formed?
2: Uh, ice cream.
1: I heard Sienna.
2: Um, so with no light and heat, it's formed through the surface chemistry of bumping into grains and forming these sort of sheets of ice, and then through the combination of, like, little free radicals that are sitting next to each other when they, these sheets of ice get bombarded with hydrogen and other molecules sort of thing. They build up, they sit next to each other, they exchange electrons.
0: Well, i was so glad that Sienna was first, and then Alistair realized that Sienna was first because that was a way better answer than I could have ever give, given, so I didn't have to embarrass myself by... I <laughs> not giving such a good answer. Yeah,
1: okay, uh, point, point to Sienna. All I have written is barrierless radical additions, but... Uh...
2: Oh, yeah, I guess that's the technical term for <laughs> molecules, radicals sitting next to each other yeah, and bumping electrons.
1: Yeah, with <laughs> no lighter heat. Yeah. Okay, uh, question the third. Name a precursor to glycine in pre-stellar ices. Uh, ice
0: cream.
1: I heard Beth first this time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Carbon monoxide?
1: Yes. Okay. I will accept that. Do you have a better answer, Sienna?
2: I was going to say formic acid.
1: Ooh, I also have that written down. The, yes. oh, the I'm going to give you both a point. Okay. The specific ones that are precursors to glycine mm. are the methylamine precursor radical, mm. the CH2NH2 radical, Methyl. and the HOCO radical.
2: HOCO, right, of course. But hoco.
1: Uh, I will I will accept both of your answers and give you both a point because Aw, thank you. those are precursors of the precursors of the precursors. hmm so involved. I guess tiebreaker question, whoop, oh, whoop, damn. whoop, whoop. Okay. i get my buzzer ready
2: so that I can <laughs> remember it this <laughs> time. Yeah.
1: What was the name of the orbiter that observed the comet 67P? Oh, I heard Beth. Yeah. Rosetta. It was the oh, Rosetta, yes, Rosetta mission. Yay! I, I
2: was like R, but then all I could think of with R was Rankin. And I was like... I'm <laughs> 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 distracted by the Rankin you ruined I've it, been confused. Stuff. I've been bamboozled. <laughs>
1: um so before i give my thanks i i want to say uh thank you to both of you and to our listeners this is my last episode this season on chemistry
2: and it might be your last episode as a not yet a doctor
1: that's true i may graduate and be a doctor the next time we record an episode Mm.
0: before sprangling then it'll be phd Plus PhD22B. Two, two yeah, we'll mm. figure
1: we'll figure out how to deal with the name <laughs> later. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to give a thanks to our listeners for sticking around for another season of my yeah. interesting chemistry. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please like yeah. and subscribe if you, had, ha- if you have enjoyed it.
2: You can also rate us on something. Stitcher, maybe? You can Apple rate us podcasts. on Apple
1: Podcasts on Spotify. Uh, I follow like you can us on, on there, Spotify. too. You can't rate podcasts uh, on Spotify. No. Oh, you can rate them on Apple Podcasts. Give us five mm-hmm. stars.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yes please
1: I'd like to thank Dr. Sergio Iopolo at mm-hmm. Queen Mary University of London for yeah. his interview the paper will be linked and all of our sources in our link tree so you can go through our link tree to a sources document where we keep all our sources and I'd like to thank Allison for the fantastic music for this season and I'll just let that fade you back to wherever you're listening thanks for listening I'm Alistair I'm Sienna and I'm Beth See you next time Oh god damn it
0: (laughs) (laughs) Leave that in
2: Catch you in your ear hair next time